Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trusha, the lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And your mic's also too close, David, and you're getting pretty loud popping sounds. But anyway, I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the LexRex Institute and a constitutional attorney, and hopefully my mic is not too close. Although All right, well, I am not speaking in the capacity of, a, of an attorney today. You got to pick between reverb and pops, apparently, because you know, you're always complaining about my reverb. Maybe just don't in front of your mouth, maybe off to the side like a little bit? No. I wish you would. No. It's really annoying. I hate this mic. I hate all of this. You hate the really expensive mic the Lex Rex Institute got for you? First of all, you already had it, so let's not, uh, you know, let's not take That's too not much true. credit That's not true. I had there. the one that I use. That's not my recollection. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's the problem is really the stand, not the mic, and also the fact that I use a laptop for this, so I can't actually put it, you know, reasonably close in front of me because the keyboard would get in the way. Anyway, before uh, we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. For those unfamiliar, the Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, we encourage you to visit our website, https colon slash slash www.lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues, even though nowadays, very often, the legal is considered to be political, but we believe it's important to distinguish between the two. We're the sole holdouts. We don't think the legal is political. <laughs> anyway, Lex Rex, the name Lex Rex is Latin for the law is king. As a reminder that the law is the only king in the United States, the word institute is actually English for institute. Anyway, <laughs> do we have anything to say today, David, or is the program done now? I think we're done. You know, good, good work, everybody. All right. uh, we kept that to Night a tiny three minutes. No, uh, this yeah, evening. We've told to go shorter, and I think we accomplished it this week. <laughs> this evening, we're really, we only have one big topic of conversation. We're going to be continuing our series on the French Revolution. And. Okay. You can keep going, David. I, I would prefer not to. Um, that's uh, a Bartleby the Scrivener reference for those of you who are fans of Herman Melville. Anyway, that was that was an obscure one, David. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not like "Call Me Ishmael" or you know, "From Hell's Heart I Stab at Thee." <laughs> no. And to be fair, I haven't actually read Bartleby the Scrivener. I don't want to. I don't want to give people the impression that I have. I'm a poser. I have not read that. Um, I'm just I've familiar seen with the that. opera Peter Grimes, but I've not read Peter Grimes. Actually, the okay. only Melville that I've read is Moby Dick. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be continuing our series on the French Revolution, especially in comparison with the American Independence Movement. Uh, please, are you, really? Again? Yeah. There has to be a limit to this. Anyway, we're going to be... Th this will be the, the last episode that's specifically about France, as we will be talking about the end of the French Revolution, the last attempt at a Republican constitution before it collapsed into the first French Empire and witnessed the rise of a guy named Napoleon. You're really just... Sorry, I didn't mean to do that twice. That was, that was a mistake. You're like Jackson Pollock with these sound effects. You're just sort <laughs> well, of that, spraying everything. the guillotine one, because it's got that little splat at the uh, end. Yeah, I guess. Bl blood splatter, yeah. All right, yeah. fair enough. 
So unless you've got more to say by way of introduction, I think we should just get into it. No, I, it's yeah. So I, I guess what's the what's the broad time span we're talking about here, David? So basically, well, the year three of the French Republic. Yes, so we begin which is, on year three. Right? Yes, that's seventeen ninety five. Calendar. Uh huh. That's the metric calendar, right, David? <laughs> yes, according to the Gregorian, it's seventeen ninety five. And okay, that's quite a difference. Yes. It's like converting Fahrenheit to Celsius. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit worse than that, I would say. More like Fahrenheit to Kelvin or something. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Last time we were talking about France, we talked about the... Again, have a secular calendar, though. I mean, that's the, the Constitution of France explicitly says that they can't recognize any religion. So it'd be illegal to have a year based on Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, you really threw me off with that comment. I'm not going to lie. I don't really know how to respond to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Last time we were talking about France, we talked about the Reign of Terror, and oh, so just a second. Yeah, that, that that was appropriate. I'll give you that one. So we were talking about the Reign of Terror, ending in the you know the downfall of the architect of the Reign of Terror, Maximilian Robespierre. At this point, we're sort of at a phase where the French sort of look around themselves and think, you know what, that wasn't very pleasant. We would really prefer to avoid that. I don't like again. terror. Yeah, you know, I don't you know, like terror. That's. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, using mass execution as a tool of political repression, you know, that tends and to I leave a bad I feel sort of taste. bad with myself for all of those <laughs> public executions that I witnessed and cheered for. Yeah. And feels sort of dirty that I did that, and I'd like to move on from that whole phase now. So, at any rate, what we're, what we're going to be talking about first here is the Constitution of the Year 3, which is the last attempt at a constitutional republic for France. Well, you know, at least before Napoleon anyway. And... It's sort of an attempt yeah, so to moderate. This is the third try, right? So they yeah. had their first try, which was their, uh, what would you call that? That wasn't really a, const I guess, constitutional monarchy, sort of. Yeah, a very short-lived attempt to sort of imitate Britain to a certain extent, but with a more kind of direct democracy flavor to it. That didn't go great, mostly because they very quickly after that soured on the idea of a king at all and put him to death. Yep, there you go. Uh, the second attempt... Was just would have been the constitution we talked about several weeks ago. Which episode yeah. was that, David? That was oh, I want to uh, say, I want to say episode fifteen. Anyway, yeah. th that was that constitution. Big swing and a miss on that one. <laughs> yeah, you know. It was so never... meanwhile, America's gone on how many tries at this point? Two, right? We got our Articles mm -hmm. of Confederation. Yep. And then that didn't work out so well. So we went to the Constitution, sort of learned from those Articles of Confederation. We talked about the way that worked last week, how the Constitution improved upon the Articles of Confederation. And, and we're still how long using did that, that second try last for us, David? Yeah, well, at least until August 26th, 2022, when we're recording this. So, you know, if it... Yeah, so hopefully it's still going on August 28th <laughs> when this is released. I'm pretty confident that it will be. Should be released on the 29th. Oh, well, I don't know if it'll still be going by then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good point. Who knows? <laughs> um, but No, I yeah. think it probably will be. That one's still going, so we're still on try number two. Let's yep. see if the third time can be the charm for the French. So that's what we're going to look at right now, right, David? Yes, and spoiler alert, not 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 so much with uh, the Constitution of the Year Three. Is it three strikes and you're out, or three strikes and you get a dictator? That's sort of the same thing, really, isn't it? When you're talking about a Republican Constitution, you're out means basically you end up with a tyrant. Yep. <laughs> now, I don't think Napoleon was ever guillotined. Pretty sure he wasn't. So no, but I think that he guillotined other people. You know, I when the am... last actually that that was the official mode of execution in France. You know, when the when the guillotine stopped. Being the official mode of execution in France? Sometime in the 60s, I believe. 
Well, it stopped when they got rid of their death penalty. So yeah. you know when the last execution by guillotine was? I, Guess you at, just take I, a at one point I knew this, and it's shockingly late. For some reason, the year 1963 is in my head, but it would, it would not surprise me if it was later than that. 1977. There you go. Yep. The year Star Wars came out. <laughs> Star Wars was in theaters while people were still getting their heads chopped off in France. Yeah. You know. That's nuts. After all, it was the rational way of executing people. We talked about that before. You know, if you're Right, if you're but now we know to... it's not actually rational to execute people at all, so that's right. why they've gotten rid of the death penalty. Yes, but if you were going to do it, it would be the if obvious... One, yeah. <laughs> try to make sure you use a guillotine. If, if, if somebody has to be executed, try to use a guillotine. Anyway, French that Constitution only applies of France, Year though. 3... That, that only applies in France. That's not true in England That doesn't apply America. anywhere. That it, was a it's joke, not, David. It's not rational. No, no, no. Uh, that was my joke, was that it was only rational to do it in France. Come on. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Constitution of the Year 3, also known as the Constitution of 1795. This is an mm. interesting one. Yeah, I got to say, <laughs> that's one this is a it. little bit better than the last one, right? I would say markedly better, but that's still not saying a lot. And we'll, we'll get into that, I guess. You know what I found hilarious about this one? Well, several things I would guess. One but of the real me. defects in the last one was the mm -hmm. absence of an executive power or the absence of an executive that really had any ability to do anything, right? Because it was yeah. an executive committee, ruled by committee. Yep. So this one, front and center, very first page, very first line of this constitution, executive power. And uh -huh. in fact, probably about half of this constitution just details what their executive can do. They don't even detail the other branches of government in this one. I think it's just no. presumed they're gonna keep their national assembly from before. The rest of it's just sort of general provisions really of the sort that you would find in a Bill of Rights. Yes. So this Constitution is an executive plus a Bill of Rights. Although their Bill of Rights also contains a Bill of Wrongs, you know, things you can't <laughs> do and they're not allowed to do, which yeah. is a bit unusual, but that's in there too. Anyway, yeah, so this time we're going to fix the executive, right? That was a problem from last time. Yep. How are we going to fix that? We're going to reduce the number of people on the committee. Yeah, smaller committee. <laughs> that fixes it, right? Well, and I, I will give them this. They went from an even number of people on the on this committee to an odd number. And that's that's an improvement. That's true. You, you avoid that's as true. many stalemates that way. In, in general, the I think they've learned a bit yes. from the U.S. Constitution in this Constitution because you know, they saw that we had a bicameral legislature. We talked yep. about that last week, about one of the advantages of our Constitution. They saw that we had that, and they were able to appropriate the general principle from that, that by filtering things through multiple bodies, you are able to immunize yourself to some degree from wild swings back and forth based on the passions of any particular group of people. Yep. So this constitution, you know, they said that works, that seems to work really well. Rather than sort of doing that, the same thing that we did, they <laughs> said, let's just implement various levels of committees and groups Everywhere in our entire system. Everything's got to get filtered through like 10, 15 committees by the time it can get done. Yep. That'll fix it. Right, David? Yeah. You know, they tend to have sort of a very one-size-fits-all mentality when they when they make these constitutions. You know, for a little while, it was everything is going to be resolved by basically national plebiscite and, you know, direct democracy. Hmm, that seemed really bad. Uh -huh. Now nothing's <laughs> going to be decided by national plebiscite. It's all decided by various nested committee yeah. you know what it makes me think of it's, it's almost alchemy of political policy it's, you want to refine it down to the perfect substance you know you begin with the dross mm -hmm. of 
whatever the public wants, which, which may have good in it, but you want to make sure that you're refining that until you get down to the gold of what is actually the general will. Yeah. But unlike regular alchemy, where you actually can refine lead into gold, it turns out that it doesn't work too well with public policy. That's, um, I did not know you were a disciple of the uh, Paracelsian arts, but uh, uh, good to know. <laughs> Wait, um, you can't do it with that kind of alchemy either? Not yet. Anyway, I, I hear they're still working on it. But oh, well. <laughs> to, to date, no. no one what do you know? It turns out that you can't just take something bad, and <laughs> filter it through multiple levels of things, and then turn it into something good. Doesn't work that way. Yeah, not, not so much. Actually, oh, I, I, I just remembered something. So you mentioned the bicameral legislature in this, and that, that sparked a memory. They had a proposal yeah. for a tricameral legislature, and the way it would work was one group would draft bills, one group would receive those drafts and debate them, and then a third group would receive the record of the debates and vote. But the first two houses could not vote, the, and um, only the second house could debate. And so they're going to the have a game time. of telephone yeah. as their legislature. <laughs> yes. Yes. See. All right. Um, anyway, so I would I, be. Did they actually? Did they actually implement that? That was no. never in place, was it? No. That, that I'd was be never really in place. curious to see what happened with that system. <laughs> yeah. My bet is you, you couldn't get that system to last very long, no, even it, if you did implement it. it as far as I know, almost immediately, it would have been the only tricameral legislature in the world. <laughs> that you know, really just. The last group is the legislature. Like yes. the other ones are just <laughs> like so. It's really just one. It, it's yeah. One it's house. Like, basically, the the first group would be like the intern who's tasked with actually like writing the document. Yeah, we call those congressional aides. Do that in our yeah. system. And then you know the the second group would be like sort of the policy team. And then the, yeah, that the, would be that'd be like when you I mean, if you get new regulations in the federal register, you always have the the committee recommendations. That's mm -hmm. that's all that would be. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, All right. sorry, uh, I interrupted you. <laughs> we were talking about yeah, the Constitution. Yeah, that's not, that's very silly. Yes. Uh, you know, that's, I guess, France is a great land of experimenting. Anyway, <laughs> a, few, a few provisions I want to draw our attention to here. First one, I found it remarkable that the directory shall be renewed in part by the election of one new member annually. Apparently, remember in the last one, every single official in their entire government, high or small, great <laughs> or insignificant, was replaced every single year? Yeah. That's no longer the case. Now you have rotation, so that's an improvement for sure. Yep. Another thing I noted, they seem very, very concerned about conflicts of interest here. There's multiple provisions about how you can appoint family members or ancestors. Oh, yeah. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... So, you know, I guess that's good. I don't know that you really need to specify that, but <laughs> it's not bad. That's fine, at least. Here, this one I didn't understand. This is about the executive directory again, and it says, It shall dispose of the armed force, but neither the directory collectively nor any one of its members may under any circumstances command same while in office or during two years immediately following the expiration of his term. So, yeah. So how are they, are they an executive directory if they're not commanding the armed forces? I don't understand that. My assumption was that it meant they couldn't take personal command. You know, like actually one like of them. The general? Yeah. And... Because dispose of the armed forces means command them. Right. Yeah. Uh, I assume that's probably an issue of <laughs> translation or and or something I, I've noticed is that it, it really does seem as though when they're drafting these constitutions or even just sort of political documents in general, they seem to never be willing to go back to revise a, a, a clause once it's been agreed on. 
So you know that's that's a good point actually. <laughs> like like they'll, they'll write something and then it's clear that after they've already ratified a provision, there'll be more debate about it. So yeah. rather than revisiting it, they'll write a new provision right under it that clarifies it or contradicts it. <laughs> I wonder if this is one yeah, of those instances. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I imagine I imagine they think that it's clarifying it. Yes. But oftentimes, yeah. yeah, just flatly contradicts. I forget which one it was from the last Constitution, but we had a, we noticed one where it said like you know when this happens, this will happen. And then immediately after that, it was like... Except for that will never happen. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, it'd be like, but if it does happen anyway, here's what you do when it happens. Yeah. I wonder if it was a we similar We have another one in thing. here that's like that. This is skipping ahead a bit. Yeah. Uh, but I found this one particularly comedic. There shall be neither privilege nor mastership nor wardenship nor limitation of the liberty of the press, of commerce, or of the practice of industry or arts of any kind. Yeah. I like that's this one as well. right? Uh-huh. Totally like, unequivocal. This one was my favorite, I think, as well. But then comes an equivocation, the next line. Uh-huh. <laughs> when circumstances render such prohibitive laws necessary, they shall be essentially provisional and shall be effective for one year only unless formally renewed. Yeah, I like that it's like two levels of qualifying that previous one. Because, you know, yeah, you, like, like you said, that seems pretty flat out unequivocal. There won't be any laws like this. Then, well, if it's necessary, you can have a law like that, but only for a year. Unless no, you, no, no, no. Only you for a year it. unless you renew it. <laughs> right. Which yeah. is going to happen. I mean, anybody that's familiar with any kind of legislative body knows that if you have a provision saying they can renew something, they will. Because yeah. what happens is whoever's in favor of that proposes a bill to get that thing and mm-hmm. then builds a bunch of concessions for their opponents into that same bill. Yeah. So that both sides have an interest in voting in favor of it. And because continuing the same thing that you've been doing in the past is always going to be more politically popular than change. You, yep. you very rarely get the expiration of provisions. Oh, yeah. Similar thing, but we've, we've seen that with the emergency regulations around COVID that, you know, yeah. never really moved beyond the emergency stage. Or, you know, a lot of the, um, well, Patriot Act is separate, but a lot of the provisions <laughs> that have to do with mass surveillance, so on, that sort of thing, those are always just built into the NDAA. Because yeah. under our constitution, we can't have standing armies. If right. the if Congress wants to have an army, they have to make sure that they're funding that uh, in regular intervals. So that's when they do that, they call those bills the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And what that does is that renews funding for the military. Obviously, we've got a huge military. That's something that has to pass, or our military, really everything but the Navy, gets disbanded. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah. So they'll always build all kinds of other stuff into that, like mass surveillance and so on and so forth. Yeah, because... Nobody in Congress, almost, I can say with a high degree of confidence, almost literally nobody would want to be responsible for disbanding the army because they refused to. Nobody would to, want that. Yeah. Like, nobody would want that. I know that a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, well, maybe guys like Bernie Sanders. No, Bernie no. Sanders votes in favor of the National Defense Authorization Act every time it comes up. Yeah. yeah maybe once or twice in the past 30 years he didn't do that, but virtually every time. Yeah. It, it's like... The closest thing to a unanimous opinion among Congress that that exists. Yeah. Anyway, that was that's skipping ahead a bit. So a couple yeah. of reasons I want to draw our attention to. Gosh, I can't read my own writing here. What does this say? Oh, I don't know what the heck ministers do in this system. It says the legislative body shall determine yeah. the number of ministers and their prerogatives. Such number may not be fewer than six nor more than eight. And then it says the <laughs> ministers shall well. be joint. Yeah, it's got, it's got only it's, three numbers it can be. It's such a narrow band. <laughs> <laughs> but then it says the ministers shall be jointly and severally responsible for the non-execution of laws as well as the non-execution of orders of the directory 
Yeah, and it's this is another sort of characteristic what, what is flaw. It? I have no clue what that means. I'm an attorney. I've never heard that language before. Yeah, well, and it's a, it's another one of these things where they say they're going to be responsible, but then it doesn't say how you hold them responsible. Like, the U.S. Constitution mentions what you do when there's a problem with the president. You can impeach him. What is the non-execution of laws, David? Yeah, you know, failing to enforce the law, one presumes. Why would they but... be responsible for failing to enforce the law? Why would that be a responsibility you give someone within your system of government? Well, actually, you know, I think I can probably say I feel pretty sure about this. They were tired of everything the government did being extra legal, which had been the case since the beginning of the Republic. Basically, nobody ever actually abided by the laws. So are, are you saying that they're supposed to ensure that the laws are enforced? Because that's not what it says. It says they're responsible for the non-execution of laws. Oh, oh, you know, I they're see. The ones that are, they're the ones that are in charge of growing no alpha. alfalfa. I, I see what, you, what you're confused here. Responsible, meaning they have to respond when questioned. They are the ones who will be held responsible. Okay, so they shall, they shall take care that the laws are <laughs> faithfully executed. That's their job? Yeah, it's, it's close to the take care clause, but worded just horribly. <laughs> right, because I'm pretty sure it's the executive that's responsible for executing the laws. Like, there's no way you can phrase this in the negative, because obviously the person responsible for carrying out a particular duty is the person who's also on the line of that duty isn't carried out. Yeah, I think and what's they, this saying is David's responsible for executing the laws and Alex is the guy that gets blamed when he doesn't do it. You know, I, I know very little French, but one thing I do know about French is that they really love double negatives in a way that English yeah. can't even support. And I'm wondering if it's one of those sorts of things where like the normal be at all way surprised. Anyway. you would express that would be to use a negative construction because French is just like that. That, that could be. I wouldn't. It's crazy that one I'm me. not confident That's, about. They're responsible but. for non-execution. Okay. Next is, <laughs> uh, so next I want to look at the general provisions. This is their sort of Bill of Rights section. Mm-hmm. And Which is great. Say, it's just terrific. This, oh, it's just, it's fantastic. One of the best Bills of Rights I've ever seen. But uh-huh. they say, there shall be no superiority among citizens other than that of public functionaries. <laughs> that only mm-hmm. in relation to the performance of their duties. So when a cop's on duty, he's superior to you. Yes. That's just a fact. The law shall recognize neither religious vows nor any obligation contrary to the natural rights of man. Yeah. That, that means there's a clause in their constitution saying that they will not respect any contracts. Well, here's again, you know, yes, based on the way it's phrased. What I suspect the goal here was to end legal consequences for monks and nuns who wanted to stop being monks and nuns. That's obviously the goal. Yeah. The state is not going to enforce religious vows, is what right. this in fact means. But yeah. it says they will not enforce any obligation contrary to the natural rights of man. Which yeah. means anytime you have bound yourself in obligation to somebody else, which is any contract, they won't enforce it. Yeah, this is yet another one of the just like repeated flaws, I think, that we see throughout the French Revolution. Where they sort of take for granted, I think, a certain understanding of a phrase without actually spelling it out or it being a defined term to begin with. And Which is particularly dangerous considering they're writing this stuff from scratch. Right. It's not based in their culture of traditions or, or legal history. They made this up. Yeah. It is absolutely prone to misinterpretation. Exactly. So I think in their heads, they're like, well, we all know what the natural rights of man are, but... No, we don't, actually. And there's a lot of debate about that. And just because there was a... We've got a great... A semi-consensus fairly recently doesn't mean that that consensus will continue. And in fact, it doesn't. 
We've got a great video about just that. It's called How to Read the Minds of the Founding Fathers. It's on our YouTube channel, Lex Rex Institute on YouTube. That one's worth looking up because the point we make in that one is that laws mean what they say. Yeah. Not what their author wanted them to say, not some imaginary realm of what the legislature intended. Laws mean what they say. And what this law says is they won't enforce any contracts. So I found that interesting. (laughs) Next one is, no one shall be held responsible for what he has written or published except in cases provided for by law. So again, building an exception into the rule because they can punish people for what they publish when provided for by law. Next one is, (laughs) no one may be prevented from performing the worship of his choice so long as he complies with the laws. Yep. And the next one, it's the same problem there. That's why I'm not mentioning that again. Mm-hmm. No one may be forced to contribute to the expenses of any religion. The Republic does not pay for any. Anything striking about these couple provisions, David, other than just obviously they've built the exception under the rule? Um, there's no there's no reason you would you'd be able to guess what yeah, I'm thinking no, uh, in answer I'm, to this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am failing to read your mind just like I failed to read the mind of the founders. What these say is shockingly similar to the way the First Amendment's free speech, free exercise, and establishment clauses have been interpreted by the courts yeah. since about maybe 1870. Mm-hmm. Strikingly similar, because no one may be forced to contribute to the expenses of a religion. Yeah. So our Constitution has, Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of religion. That's been interpreted to mean just this, right? Yeah. That they can't force contributions or expenses of a yeah. religion. And there's tons of case law on that. I mean, if you've watched our episode on the Kennedy decision, you've seen that the lemon test is basically just that. Or even The more... lemon test is a balancing test for this constitutional provision, not for the <laughs> establishment clause. Yeah, even more on point, I, th- I think it was Carson v. Macon was that case with the main school system. Where, yeah. You know, the, yeah, the the point was they were like, well... We don't want any public funds to go towards something that's religious. And yeah, that would be completely on point under this constitution. Yeah. And it's a dispute like in Kennedy, you know, Mm -hmm. where where basically his free exercise right to pray as he sees fit is juxtaposed and sort of balanced against the interest of the state in preventing funding for or support of any religion. That would be a valid balancing test under this constitution because you have another provision that says just that. That no one can be prevented from performing the worship of his choice so long as he complies with the laws. And that actually sort of explains why the so-called left wing of the court feels the way they do about it. Because they, they say, you know, yeah, sure, Kennedy has a right to pray, but this is an instance in which it interfered with the compliance with the law. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, it almost looks like our Supreme Court is interpreting these constitutional provisions, not the ones that are actually in our Constitution. So that was striking to me. But yeah, just looking one more time at that, no one may be prevented from performing the worship of his choice so long as he complies with the laws. That basically is the rationale in Employment Division v. Smith. That was the case where the guy was smoking peyote Mm -hmm. and that applied for unemployment, got denied unemployment. And they said, because peyote is illegal and that's a law of general applicability, you do not have any entitlement to exercise your religion on that point. Even though the guy was Native American, argued that smoking peyote was part of his religion. That test from Smith, the general applicability test, is this provision. That's true. Another section that's similar to that in here is this one. The Constitution guarantees the inviolability of all property or just indemnification for that which legally established public necessity requires the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Of course, our Fifth Amendment has a takings clause, which says the government can take property for public use. Yeah. 
There's a difference here in the there. French Constitution. You got mm-hmm. public necessity. Our Constitution says public use. You know what phrase is used in our constitutional jurisprudence I'm for, for g- taking clause cases? I'm going to guess necessity. <laughs> public necessity. Yeah. Constitution doesn't say that. No. It says public use. You know, if, if you want to take away somebody's land so that you can build, oh, I don't know, what do people like nowadays? What do people want to do? Go to baseball games? Yeah, so you can build a new <laughs> baseball field, privately run baseball field. That's not allowed for under the Fifth Amendment. That is not public use. Public use means the government continues to run and operate that property. Right. Not that they're just giving it to a private company to do that. Public necessity allows for that. Well, that's what we have in the French Constitution. That's the way that ours has been interpreted. Broadly interpreted. I'm not sure that attendance at professional baseball is ever truly necessary, but, you know, that's a matter of debate. Uh, Yeah, arguably, (laughs) um, it fits fits better, certainly. Public necessity allows for a broader Uh taking of private property. You know, oh, yeah, we've been mentioning sure. in episodes past about French law, the French system, things in the French Revolution. that They're sort of retroactively read into what we did in our system. Yeah. This is the best, clearest, most obvious example of that that I've seen so far. And that's sort of what I wanted to talk about with this document is it almost looks like our justices are interpreting these provisions. Yeah. Well, and we'll, we'll talk, I think, in this episode, certainly in the next episode that we do on this series, at any rate, how influential... French revolutionary ideas have been worldwide and, you know, for reasons that are frankly beyond me, because it, it seems like you should look yeah. at what happened and realize mm-hmm, that led some bad places. But, well, but, but you know, the reasoning behind it, though, it's yeah. because we're, we're going to talk about in a bit with Napoleon, uh, because there were so many other republics in you know, basically what for for good or ill was regarded as the civilized world. They were under the Napoleonic code. Yeah. These basic provisions ended up presiding over the majority of the developed world. Yeah. So because of that, when somebody looks at provisions in our constitution, they think, oh, this is very similar to these other ones that are used abroad in all these other countries. Yeah. So if you have any familiarity with international law and you're familiar with the fact that lots of different countries have similar provisions, well, you tend to read ours to to align with what the vast majority of other countries have. Yeah. Ignoring that the vast majority of other countries only have that because a tyrant in France forced it upon them <laughs> and that it has yeah. nothing in common with what's in our country. Yeah. Well, and with, you know, with that in mind, before we get into talking about the rise of Napoleon and the collapse of all that came before, there are a few provisions in this constitution that I want to highlight because it'll help illuminate the historical situation. As you mentioned, the, the sort of the second section of this constitution is basically a bill of rights, but... It has and also very, a bill of wrongs. Yes. Like, like there's no, they're very clear there is no right to assembly, no right to free exactly. association. I mean, very yeah. clear about that. Yeah. So just, you know, but there's a lot of these clauses, but just by way of example, corporations and associations which are contrary to public order may not be formed. No assembly of citizens may mm. call itself a popular society. And then this one is very stark, even starker, I would say. No private society which concerns itself with political questions may correspond with another or affiliate therewith or hold public sessions composed of the members of the societies. And it just goes on. You know, if you if you are a political club and bear in mind, that's, you know, what the Jacobins were. That's what a lot of these groups that ended up very influential were. You can't talk to anyone else, basically, and you can't hold public meetings. So yeah, so much for <laughs> That no one may be held responsible for what he's written or published. Yeah. Um, but apparently... This sort of guts that. Yeah. But if, if, you know, verbal stuff, maybe. But anyway, so... 
not, it, not even. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting because you can see where elements of this constitution were clearly meant to sort of provide more of a safeguard for individual rights than under we previous versions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they That's were afraid right. of the terror coming back, basically. But the other thing they were afraid of, because they didn't want the terror to come back, was the Jacobins ever being popular again. <laughs> and yes. so there's like yes. <laughs> a lot of this constitution that is clearly just aimed at like, no more Jacobins. You can't be a Jacobin. Well, what made them popular? We let people talk about politics too much. People got yeah. together in clubs and they shared their funny ideas. Yeah. We gotta prevent that. <laughs> and they let people come and watch and people liked it. <laughs> we don't want that again. Um... You get a lot of people talking like this now, right? I, I mean, mean, it's like like people who complain about the influence of money in politics. Like people run ads on TV for yeah. politicians I don't like, measures I don't like. That's we shouldn't let them do that because that makes things I don't like pass. Yeah, pretty much. You know, <laughs> too much exposure to political ideas. Good, you know, because they might be bad ones. That's the problem. That's the yeah. real. Or some of the people arguing, you know, they ought to regulate Facebook because Russians like to put too many ads on Facebook and they prefer yeah. certain candidates for president. And that might make people vote for those candidates. Yeah. All right. I mean, <laughs> but may, yeah. maybe disclosure requirements make sense. Say that, you know, this ad is funded in whole or in part by the Russian government. But yeah, by uh, it, you know, Putin's people it, living in a, in a representative self-government assumes that people have the capacity to make a decision about who their leader is going to be. Yeah. If they're so easily influenced by information from anybody that it's going to totally ruin that system. Yes. Well, you kind of gutted self-government, haven't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it, it, I think a lot of people talk a big game about liking, you know, quote unquote democracy. We've talked before about how that term has kind of escaped the bounds that it once had. But, largely because of the French Revolution. Yeah, but really a lot of people seem to favor just sort of, uh, you know, a, a bureaucratic paternalism, and that's one of the ways. There actually are protections against bureaucratic paternalism in this system. Wait, no, they're not, there aren't, because ministers didn't mean what I thought it meant when I read it. <laughs> yeah, I think they thought they were getting that and didn't know how to do it, which is, again, a theme yeah. of this, of this uh -huh. whole series on the French Revolution. <laughs> But anyway, so this is what they wanted to replace the prior efforts at constitutionalism. It yet again ends up not really working out. And Although they do implement this one. They do. Yes, they do. The directory does come into existence. does not last very long. And, well, we'll get into the why of that right now, I guess. There's a guy. A, a, certain, a certain short Corsican. Uh-huh. Yeah, Napoleon Bonaparte, better known as Napoleon Bonaparte, yeah. because he Frenchified his name later. He was Corsican, so he actually grew up speaking like speaking an Italian dialect, more or less. Yeah, it's funny that the two great dictators of the past two hundred years, you know, the, the really bad ones, the ones that sort of ruined things for everybody. <laughs> neither of them was from the country they ended up ruling. They're both hyper nationalists, and neither of them came from the country they ruled. You can add Stalin to that list too. Uh, he was a Georgian. yeah, that's true. He's Georgian. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and ended up being huh? kind of a Russian nationalist despite being Georgian. But anyway, Napoleon enters onto the scene. He's, to begin with, an artillery officer. And, you know, Napoleon... Really good at shooting cannons. Yeah. Well, really good at shooting cannons. As much as I, I think Napoleon is, you know, historically speaking, kind of a monster, you do have to kind give of. him certain credit for <laughs> military success. And it's worth noting that prior to the sort of Napoleonic era... Artillery was not really integrated into the main armies anywhere, basically. It was sort of a, a detached division. He really changed that 
and I think it has to do with the fact that he came up as an artillery officer. But that's beside they, the They point. figured out the whole parabolic trajectory of cannonballs and whatnot. Before that, it was just sort of you eyeball it and you shoot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just point the cannon that way. Anyway. They, they figured out all the math to it. French are good at that. French tend to be pretty good at math. So yeah. um, they figured that out. Anyway, but you know, he, he starts just sort of as a junior officer in the army. He ends up being appointed general of an army that was invading Italy. And he's basically, for a little while, the only French general... Where he's from. Yeah. Well, mainland Italy, not Corsica in this case, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> yeah, more or less. He's really the only French general actually having any success at this phase of the war. They're sort of facing setbacks in Germany and, and elsewhere. But Napoleon's doing very well and consequently gets very popular yeah, with th- the masses. That's, so the important thing about directory government, the government under the, the Constitution of the year three that we just talked about, is mm-hmm. that one of the first things it does is gets into a war with everybody. So that's the war Mm -hmm. that Napoleon's now fighting it. Yeah. And Napoleon, oh, this this is another thing worth noting. If you've ever wondered to yourself, why does France have so much of Europe's art? The answer is basically because they stole it. Napoleon stole it from Italy <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Um, the Italian Renaissance was mostly focused around a bunch of cities in the north of Italy, and that's where he happened to be fighting. And basically what happened was they would conquer part of Italy, they would impose a republic on that part of Italy, and then as part of like the treaty that set it up, they'd just take all their art and all their money and send it back to Paris. So that's mm-hmm. basically why the Louvre has so much Italian art, at least. They did similar things in the Netherlands, too, but... Anyway, that's pretty horrible. Yeah, uh, shouldn't do that. But Napoleon is, you know, at this point doing so well in Italy, has so much popular acclaim that he's fundamentally sort of loose of any political control. And he ends up actually negotiating a peace treaty on his own authority, more or less, without the approval of the government. And very, very similar to what happened millennia earlier in Rome. Yeah, I was, uh, was going to say Caesar. The, very, very similar. Those of you who have an ear for classical parallels are probably thinking about. Uh, well, actually, I guess Caesar was the opposite. He came from Italy and went into France, vice versa yeah. here. But Napoleon, you know, has basically assumed executive authority, at least in that regard. And it's, I want to draw the parallels to Washington, too, especially because yeah. they don't play out. Yes. You know, similarly, <laughs> Washington was fighting a war, a war that was of greater national significance because it was about independence, probably yeah. much more popular than Napoleon was even. You know, he got a unanimous vote the first time he ran for president. That's not just yeah. of the electors. He got a unanimous vote. Yeah. So, well, we'll, um, we'll get, we'll know, get to that because Napoleon, not quite unanimous on, on a similar point, but very close to unanimous. But, but my, my point is that most people in the history of the world, when they've been as yeah. popular and as successful as somebody like Napoleon or Caesar was, you're not getting a republic. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> George Washington, on the other hand, was one of the principal folks pushing for a constitutional convention. He wanted yeah. to make sure that we get a republic so that we didn't collapse into a tyranny because yeah. he knew all too well that was the risk that republics faced in this yeah. sort of instability. And that was very much the risk that France was facing at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And rather than having a leader that resisted that urge, they had a leader who went head first into it. Yeah. And it's I think I'm skipping way, way ahead and we're not even going to talk about the downfall of Napoleon. But I, I think this remark is very illuminating after the Battle of Waterloo, where, you know, the Duke of Wellington commanding the British forces and, and allied forces famously defeated Namesake Napoleon. Namesake of Beef Wellington, True. so you know that he's important. <laughs> anyway, Wellington was the commander at the battle that sort of finally put an end to Napoleon, and they send him into exile on an island off the coast of Africa, and he's said to have remarked, I wonder what Wellington will do now. 
surely he will not be content to go back to being a private citizen. And I think that that's just, what he did, though. That shows you exactly what Napoleon thought like, though. He's like, you know, oh, yeah. you know, once you have this victory in hand, obviously you're going to seize power. <laughs> well, look at Washington. I mean, Washington wanted nothing more than to go back to being a private citizen his entire yeah. career. You look at his farewell address and it's just, please never bother me again. Surely <laughs> everybody will now say that I've done my duty to my country. Yeah. Napoleon. Nobody can say I didn't anymore. Let me go home. Napoleon is possibly the greatest ego in human history. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. yeah, if any person who's ever lived. You know, it's 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 really sort of a shame because after World War II, sort of the archetypal tyrant stopped being Napoleon and became Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And obviously Adolf Hitler was a, a huge tyrant. But I think the fact that Hitler did a few fairly specific, really bad things yeah. that most tyrants don't do. Right. So when he becomes our archetypal tyrant, people look back and they say, you know, if you're calling a current leader a tyrant, saying they're acting... In, in a manner you know, like a tyrant would, they say, oh, well, I haven't killed any Jews. Or, oh, well, I haven't started a war with Poland. <laughs> you know, very specific yeah. stuff. It's, it's People tend to identify now racial persecution or targeting of various minority groups as the main form of tyranny. It's not that way at all. You know, Hitler was a very unique and specific kind of tyrant. I would say that Napoleon was the generic tyrant par excellence. Yeah, uh, it's... And yeah, I'll, I'll take this moment to sort of make a general comment. There are actually aspects of the sort of French system under Napoleon that are arguably significantly better than they were under, for instance, Robespierre. But sure, yeah. I, was just, I mean, yeah. comparing to Robespierre, the answer is a definite. I thought you were going to yeah. say under Louis the Sixteenth. Well, I, I was, I was yeah. aiming for a little bit of understatement. Uh, that's true too, though. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, the, the French monarchy certainly needed reform. We'll probably talk about that. It, it, you know, at a later date. But Napoleon, though, is absolutely an archetypal tyrant. Like, it's it's one-man government writ large, basically, it, including, you know, he maintained personal command of all the armed forces while also maintaining personal command of the government. Um, Divided but, all of France up into administrative divisions, yeah. had basically military control over those administrative divisions. Yeah. It forced people in the Netherlands to change their last names. It's a funny story <laughs> in relation to that, by the way, if you want to tell it, David. But Well, basically, you know, they, the French forced the Dutch to come. Quickly, David, boring. Remember, their criticism is boring. <laughs> they forced them to come and register their last names. And uh, yeah, the, anyway, some of them chose joke names, including like some of them Many saying, of them. I'm the emperor. So a lot of people ended up with that as a last name, basically. <laughs> but... Uh, which, which, what is that in Dutch? Uh, I don't know in Dutch. I, I, I'm assuming it's probably it's close to... It's a common to, Dutch last name. It's you know, probably I, close I, to I, Kaiser. I go to a Dutch church. Um, I, I know Dutch folks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not an uncommon Dutch last name. So enough people yeah. showed up and said that they were the emperor. That yeah. That's now a fairly common Dutch last name. Anyway, we're getting a little off track here, though. So Napoleon is this rising star militarily. He goes on to do some other... You know, he goes on an expedition to Egypt very famously... And then leaves his army there to to escape back and, and you know advance his political career, leaving them to die more or less. Great guy, but yeah. which is basically that was his main military trick. Mm -hmm. uh, you know he's regarded as a very effective general. His main trick was he would sort of just send in some elite skirmishers to kind of force out the enemy, and then just rush them with all the rest of his troops. Just yeah, basically total disregard for human life. Uh, and yeah. through total disregard for human life, he was able to win a lot of battles. So. You know, I, that's maybe a little unfair to Napoleon as a general, but it's it's accurate nah, I don't think so. toward his uh, his uh, yeah his his record on human rights and such. Anyway, but I, I don't think it's unfair. You know, the, his logistics were so bad as a general that he had soldiers dying in fields full of grain. 
Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we, we can we can leave that for a different podcast. I'm sure there's some military history podcasts that'll go into that. But he escapes from Egypt to basically seize his opportunity to be the head of a coup d'etat, which is what happens. The government, as we mentioned, was deeply divided internally, fearing sort of a resurgent Jacobin party, which had started to, to sort of make a comeback. And basically, Napoleon shows Uh-oh. up with some with some soldiers they tell the National Assembly or National Convention, I forget what it's called at this point, that there's a Jacobin conspiracy and they need to you know, do all these things. They pressure three of the five directors into resigning so that there's no more you know, functional government. And basically everyone does that at gunpoint, more or less. And they institute a new form of government, yet another one, where the executive will be three consuls. That's another Roman parallel. And Napoleon, yeah, yeah. Napoleon makes himself. Wait, first we, we, ought to, we ought to get into the, the collapse of the Roman Republic into empire at some point. I'm not sure how familiar yeah. people are with that. No, that, that's a, it, it's a, definitely a another good, good case study in the way yeah. that republics tend to go. Yeah, Napoleon makes himself first consul. After another victory later on, he has a plebiscite conducted in which the people, by like a 92% vote, so this was my almost unanimous thing, award him consulship for life as a reward. <laughs> And then he basically yeah. proceeds to... Did he refuse to, the laurel three times before accepting it? or Probably something like that. He definitely had a yeah, that, uh, That's taste. a Caesar yeah. parallel again. It's very, very similar. You know, public clamor for him to be yeah. in charge forever. Yeah. He, he had a taste for the dramatic and for classical parallels. So something like that very likely did happen. And basically he ices yeah, out the other consuls. He's a little bit consoles. flamboyant, that guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he ices out the other consuls and, offend, and you know, essentially becomes a one-man government and then later formally declares that by having himself crowned emperor. And that's where we you get have the French Empire. You have here in our notes that a guy by the name of Abe Seas. <laughs> I don't know how you that's, say that. That's, uh, well, it, it, that's actually uh, sort of a nickname. The, this guy was a clergyman, so that's like Abbot Sier. Ah, I see. Yeah, he helped, like went along with this coup hoping to take the opportunity to introduce a more sort of Anglo-American style of constitution that would, as we mentioned, be stronger on individual rights, and he thought he could use Napoleon to do it. He could use a strong man to uh-huh. get people to agree to that, because yep. people don't want to agree to that. So, yeah, Napoleon, he seems like your guy who's going to help uh-huh. with that, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, trusted the wrong man there. Yeah, that but, was... And, you know, I, I want to I, I, <laughs> I point out, too, this is such a classical sort of pattern of, you know, revolutionary or like, you know, just very progressive and new kinds of governments where they introduce basically what we would call legislative tyranny in American sort of political philosophy, Mm -hmm. a government where the legislature is all powerful, more or less. And that quickly reveals itself to be either ineffective or tyrannical, often both. And then people, you know, they're like, oh, you know, this, this whole, you know, we talked about this before. Everyone hates Congress, right? That's a classic. Yeah. Yes. We hate this lawmaking body. They don't get anything done or they do it all wrong or whatever. We need like a strong leader. Yeah, we need a strong (laughs) leader who would do it right. And, you know, that happened in Rome multiple times. That happened obviously here. It happened in Germany. That's Hitler. Uh huh. You know, well, and Bismarck before him. Yeah, it, different sort of route to that. But yeah, yeah different basically. Cir- circumstances. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, Bismarck turned out better, but... Sure. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's an extremely classical pattern. And it, well, I won't say too much yeah, about I mean, this. We, we could keep going. I mean, yeah. it's happened throughout the world over and over again. It tends to be the way that legislative governments go. 
Yeah. Eventually. Yeah, you end up with yeah. a strong and it's man. Obvious, and there's obviously tons of pressure on George Washington for him to do that, which I think is why he ends up being one of the strongest voices in favor of revising the Articles of Confederation into a constitution, because he's getting these letters. He knows just how strong public clamor for a strong man is. Yeah. And he knows that other people are going to be less resistant to that than he is. Yeah. So, you know, really remarkable, admirable man there. That's what he ends up doing. Yeah. Um, Napoleon does just the opposite, <laughs> makes himself the emperor. Yeah. Changes the entire art style uh, of the, yeah, true. of France. You know, it's, you, you know, you look at something by like a David and, and it's completely different from what they were painting 10 years earlier than that. I mean, yeah. they're going totally back to a Roman classical style with everything they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's, that's not great, but. <laughs> and I guess the last word on Napoleon should probably be, because again, this is a legal issues podcast, that he implements what's called the Napoleonic Code. Yeah, we mentioned that briefly earlier. Yep. Uh, and, and we will, I'm sure we'll have a whole episode just on the Napoleonic Code. That's probably true, it's yeah. worth doing. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, actually just occurred to me, that's another classical parallel because this tended to be the pattern codes. For, yes, for, codes. for great emperors. Like, you know, not only would they win military victories, but they would then reform the laws. So you have, you know, the... Justinian, sort of the famous one. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, many instances prior to that. But yes, Justinian is probably the most famous and kind of the last one. We still, in large part, the, the English common law still abides by the code of Justinian. You know, yeah. that's, it's that influential. Yeah, and as we mentioned, Napoleonic code remains extremely influential. Just a few things I wanted yeah. to highlight about it. But it shouldn't be influential here. It was never <laughs> implemented here. Yeah. It's not valid law here. It is valid law in most of Europe, whether or not it should be. But yeah. there's no, absolutely no reason to read that retroactively into our constitution. Except in Louisiana. Our of. constitution was written before it. <laughs> yeah. Except sort of in Louisiana where they did have a French law system, although not the Napoleonic system. That's a good point. That's mm-hmm. a good point. <laughs> it was a statutory system, though, rather yeah. than a common law system. So yeah. And that's, that's, that's probably the first point to note that the Napoleonic Code does away with sort of the last vestiges, which were already basically gone, of common law in France. You know, And, and it's clear why a tyrant would want to do that. Tyrants yeah. don't like judge-made law yeah, because it gives judges a lot of power. They prefer to be able to have their word be law, you know, like Pharaoh in the old days. Yeah. Or the ancient, more than the old and, days. You know, the, the ancient days where Pharaoh would say, you know, so let it be written, so let it be done. That's yeah. the law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no... No wiggle room there. Yeah, and, you know, nothing in the past can set a limit on what you want to do. That's also very helpful. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, Fran- France yeah. to this day has no principle of stare decisis. We, we, I think we've mentioned that on the show before, but basically the... Uh, it's Yeah, and we mentioned it. We have a fairly long and boring video on that that nobody watched, <laughs> but it really is worth it's worth watching. The reason it's long and boring is because it's probably the most important issue for you guys to understand about Anglo-American law. Yeah. Uh, and it's on the role of precedent yeah. in the United States. There's actually two videos Um they're, they're back-to-back. We released them back-to-back. I don't remember the exact names on those. We'll get them in the, the description for this podcast. But they're basically on how does precedent work and then when should precedent be overruled. Yeah. Those are important videos. But yeah, stare decisis is the principle that past decisions of courts are going to bind future decisions of courts. Yeah. They got rid of that in France. Yep. Another one, this is... You know, that one's obviously terrible. Uh, from, it means let the decision stand, by yeah. the way. Latin for let the decision stand. Yeah, that, that one's obviously very, very bad. I think maybe just as bad is that it changed the way the courts worked 
from an adversarial system, which is what we have, basically one party against another, and the court is kind of the arbiter, just the referee, right? You know, trying to make sure people Mm -hmm. make their arguments within the rules, to what's called an inquisitorial system, where the court is actively investigating the issue. And that may sound okay. They're your opponent. Yeah. It may (laughs) sound okay. Your prosecutor is also your judge. Exactly. Until you realize that means that the person who gets to make the rulings, like, you know, say what's inbounds, what's out of bounds, that's the person trying to prove that you did the thing that they think you did. (laughs) Uh Yeah. So they're real on guard against conflicts of interest in their legislature, but but not not on guard against them. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Which is a great segue into everybody's favorite part of this podcast. Captain Kangaroo Court. So gather around kids, everybody young and old, come near, and we will hear the most ridiculous and absurd anecdotes in the law in the United States today and really throughout the world, throughout all the history. <laughs> yeah, folks, it's Captain Kangaroo Court. I don't know what else there is to say yeah, about that. Uh, I guess, you know, I think most people probably know what Captain Kangaroo is, but it occurred to me we never actually explained that. It, it was an old kid show called Captain Kangaroo. It's yeah. like a TV, it's yeah. a TV show. Uh, yeah, it's, it hasn't been on the air for, is, right? for some time, so maybe younger listeners are not familiar. But anyway. Huh. Well, then their only exposure will be Captain yeah. Kangaroo Court. Anyway, and fine uh, we that. went sort of long, <laughs> so I'm going to try to keep this punchy. Yeah. We're going to start. I've got one too, by the way. But Okay. In that case, let me start with one that was actually submitted by your sister, Vanessa. Ah. And this is, I think this is going to turn out because I, I did not drill super deeply into the actual technical side of this case. I think this could turn out to be one of those instances like we did before where a court ruled that bumblebees are fish. And that was actually correct, legally speaking. But just sort of yeah. the way you say it makes yes, it Yes, bumblebees are fish, folks. <laughs> That's not actually true. Bumblebees are fish under the Game and Wildlife Code or whatever they yeah. call it in the state of California. I think that's, like f- fish and wildlife. Context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is uh, in a case called Hernandez v. City of Phoenix. Basically... What happened? Well, I'll just I'll just read this headline. Police officers racist memes on a personal Facebook address, quote, matters of public concern. And um, so. So this is this has got to. Well, go on, David. I'm not <laughs> going to guess about it. <laughs> so basically, uh, th- this, this guy was a member of, of the, you know, the Phoenix PD, I think, or he might have been a state police officer. I don't remember. But he was disciplined by the police department for things he'd posted in violation of their social media policy. All of it, basically anti-Muslim. That's sort of the uh, the ah. direction that this takes. Muslim's not a race, though. That's, you know, more no, but, you know, bigoted it, against a religion. It, it gets sort of, you know, mixed up with anti-Arab stuff very often. That, that seems to be sort of the thrust here. Majority of Muslims are, are going to be uh, Southern Asian. Because it's, I think, I think Malaysia is the biggest Islamic country. Indonesia, actually, but... I'm sorry, that's what I meant, Indonesia. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. All that's true. I guess, you know, better to say bigoted, I suppose. Yeah, uh, certainly bigoted. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, a lot of the stuff this guy was sharing was very UK-centric because people from West Asia and the Middle East represent a much larger proportion of the immigrant population in Britain than they do in America. Get on with uh, it, David. There. Setting aside the, the legal <laughs> things, because like I said, you know, I didn't look super deeply into the technical side of this, but... Basically, he was exonerated by one court. I think it's still under appeal on the grounds that the things he was saying could be construed as public comment on matters like immigration. Now, okay. for some of them, that may... I see. So he's arguing free speech protection because yeah. it's a matter... Of... Okay, got it. Now, some of those that may be true of, but 
this one in particular, you know, I'm really not sure how you spin this as being an immigration issue, but uh, here you go. We're doing this like the old hot take section, aren't we? Sort of. Anyway, yeah. it says, it's got a picture of a guy getting into a, a, an English taxi cab. Yep. And it says, a devout Muslim entered a black cab in London. He curtly asked the cabbie to turn off the radio because as decreed by his religious teaching, he must not listen to music because in time of the prophet, there was no music, especially Western music, which is the music of the infidel. That's not... Yeah, there was music. This is a made-up story. Uh -huh. I can say that right now. Yep. But it goes on. The cab, <laughs> That's not true at all. I no, mean, there was music. Muhammad was like the greatest prophet. I'm sorry greatest poet of his day i meant there was a lot of that was clearly set to music uh-huh yeah and you know muhammad lived around the year 600 uh-huh people had invented music <laughs> by the year 600 long before that uh -huh. you know, we, we found we found trumpets in king tutankhamun's tomb that's several thousand years before that so yeah. anyway the cab driver politely switched off the radio stopped the cab and opened the door the arab muslim asked him what are you doing the cabbie answered in the time of the prophet, there were no taxis. So piss off and wait for a camel. Uh-huh. I don't know that that is a public comment yeah, about it, matters it of certainly, public import. It doesn't seem like one. <laughs> now, no, this is where no. I, you know, I, I, some of the other ones, you know, I think had a slightly more direct connection to, to immigration issues. This actually, arguably. you were right, David. This was racist. Uh -huh. This wasn't, this wasn't for, just bigoted. I forgot that Muslim. it actually specif specified Arab toward the end there, but it did. Yeah, and it uh -huh. has the camel thing in there. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, oh. anyway. You're right. So it was racist. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, you know, I... Uh, I'm surprised they didn't tell him to ride a flying carpet. That would have been a little more racist, even. <laughs> uh, thank you for pointers on how to be a more effective racist, I guess. <laughs> we'll help you out with anything here at Lex Rex. Uh, probably not that though. Actually, don't don't please don't call probably, us. For, you know, I don't I don't think we'll help you with that. Please that don't contact us for that. So anyway, uh, thank you to Vanessa for submitting that. All right, so I, I've got one here. This is from an Icelandic saga. So I don't know how much you guys know about oh, Icelandic sagas. Taking it way far back. The way here. that Icelandic. You, I don't know if you've read them or not, but you may have sort of a mental image about what Icelandic sagas are like. So let me just give you sort of an idea. You know the TV show Law and Order? Mm-hmm. I do. I'm familiar. Yeah, so how the first part's always people committing crimes, and the second part's how they investigate it and then litigate it in court. Yep. Sure. Yeah, well, Icelandic sagas are a lot like that. The first part of an Icelandic saga is always people doing their brave deeds, fighting against, you know, mythic beings or saving people. Yeah. Know, yeah, sort of Beowulf traditional, stuff, you know, yeah. yeah, Beowulf kind of stuff. And then the second part is where they all go to court and then sort out who's liable for what. Yeah. <laughs> that almost every Icelandic saga goes that way. You know? Yeah, you know, So I, I found one little appreciated fact about, ahead, about uh, Vikings and, and Nordic cultures, cultures in general. They loved legal procedure. It was like, yeah, they loved it after loved it. after like killing Englishmen or Slavs and stealing stuff. That was probably their favorite thing. Yeah, I mean, it might have been even more than stealing stuff. Arguably, a lot yeah. of times people mm -hmm. get the stuff they stole taken away from them in those legal <laughs> proceedings. Yeah, true enough. But anyway, go on, go on. But uh, this is from a saga called I am going to butcher this name. Oh yeah, don't don't Bergbrugge saga, which is spelled E Y R B Y G G J A. Hmm. Yeah, you're on your own for that one. Yeah, which means the saga of the air dwellers, E-R-E -E dwellers, Ur dwellers, maybe. Okay. Uh, but anyway, it's from about 1200. As we mentioned, Icelanders at the time love legal dramas. So this one's about a guy who comes home from his brave exploits, and it's got the brave exploits first. I'm not going to get too much into those. Yeah. But he comes home, he goes into his house, and he finds the house has been wrongfully possessed by undead people. 
Ah. Uh, various undead <laughs> people, chestnut. zombies, yeah. if you will. They didn't call them zombies at the time, but, you know, Draugr, zombies. Draugr, I think, was the term. Draugr. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's from Skyrim, isn't it, David? I think that's actually the real term, though, that they used. Huh. Well, my knowledge comes from Skyrim. I, 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 actually, I think they called him that in this, this saga, too. I think yeah, you're right. Draugr, I'm pretty yeah. sure that's right. So, Alternatively, so, I'm also thinking about Skyrim, but... <laughs> What do you do when undead people wrongfully possess properties of real estate? Uh, file for eviction? Yeah, you have a fee simple absolute in that. So you, you can dispossess them of that real estate. All it takes is, is getting a writ from the court issued. So what, um, what this guy does, I don't have his name written down. No, I, I do have his name written down. It's like uh, Thorier or something like that. But mm-hmm. what Thorier does is he files with the court, files a writ with the court, and he, he creates a proceeding against every one of these Draugr individually so that he can have them evicted <laughs> from his home. So all of these people in a very orderly fashion, or all of these undead people, rather, in a very orderly fashion, show up at court so that they can have their claim heard. And this is the section where the trial takes place, or at least part of that section. Then was the doom door named, and the cases put forward, and it was done in all matters even as it was done of the thing. Verdicts were delivered, cases summed up, and doom given. So doom means the judgment yeah. in the case. Mm-hmm. But soon as the sentence on Thorier wooden leg was given out, he arose and said, Here have I sat, while said I might, and thereafter he went out by the door before which the court was not set. Then was the sentence on the shepherd passed, and when he heard it, he stood up and said, Go I now hence from... Ere ween erst I had more seemly been. So it's issuing, verdict, rendering a verdict, a judgment against these different individuals. And they're getting up and they're leaving uh-huh. and, and leaving his home. And when Thorgrima Witchface heard the doom on her <laughs> ended, she also arose and said, Here while abiding was meet I abode. Then they charged one after the other, and each arose as the sentence fell on him, and all said, somewhat at their going forth, and ever it seemed by the words of each, that they were all loath to depart. Mm-hmm. At last the judgment given on good man Thorod. And when he heard it, he stood up and he said, Me seems little pieces here, so get us all gone otherwhere. And therewith he went out. So they did, you know, they didn't like it. <laughs> Those Draugr didn't like the verdict yeah. of the court. Uh-huh. But they all abided by it. And as soon as that judge rendered his judgment, they were gone from that place. And Thorir was able to retake his lawful residence. And he lived happily ever after. Yeah. You know, I haven't watched The Walking Dead, but I'm pretty sure that's how The Walking Dead ends, too. That they just sort Is of, it? Is it really? I think they just get... They just say they don't have any law. Lo- I right, think they just well. sort of get, like, uh, yeah, you know, the court to evict the zombies from Georgia or wherever that is. Um well, borrowing from the classics there. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. Well, I guess that's all for Captain Kangaroo Court today. Hopefully you learned something about the state of justice or the state of injustice in the world today and the world back in 1200 AD. But whether you learned it or not, hopefully you enjoyed your time here. So that's all for Captain Kangaroo Court, folks. Yeah, and that will also do it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and we hope that yep. you'll listen again. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a good night, folks. Bye.